This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Your Bibles, I invite you to open to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we provide them for you uh, in the seat backs in front of you. You can find our passage on page 46. That's page 46 in the pew Bibles in front of you. Exodus chapter 3, our focus will primarily be on verses 1 through 17 this morning. Please follow along as I read. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Lord God, we ask for your grace upon this time as we look to your word to behold your character. But I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that we would worship you in this time. Spirit, illuminate your truth to us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen, please be seated.
Have you ever found yourself in a place where maybe intellectually you say you agree with the things of God's word, but maybe experientially or maybe emotionally you find it difficult to really believe what his word says is true? Maybe you begin to have doubts about certain things. Maybe you're going through a suffering or a hardship and you begin to doubt and you say things like, is God really in control? Is God really good? Does he really love me? Maybe you feel overwhelmed by God's calling in your life and you feel like, I, I, I just, I can't do it. I can't be a good father. I can't be a good mother. I can't be a good employee. Or maybe you feel like, I, I, I can't share the gospel with my neighbor or my coworker or my unbelieving son. Anytime I'm, I, I have the opportunity, I just, I just shrink away. I lose the words to say. Maybe you feel like living for Christ in this unbelieving world is just getting harder and harder and I just, I, I can't do it. Maybe seeds of doubt begin to take root and you wonder, what am I to do with this? What am I to do when I find myself in the deepest of doubts? Well, my hope this morning is to answer that question by looking at this passage in Exodus chapter three. And before we start, let's set the stage a little bit on how we even got to where we are in Exodus chapter three. Israel has now been enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. And how did this happen? Well, Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Israel, after many events, he becomes the second in command in Egypt, and then, so then he brings his family there to live with him. And then several years goes by and Joseph eventually dies. But the people of Israel, they continue to grow and they continue to multiply to great numbers. And then at this point, the current king of Egypt, he didn't even know Joseph. Joseph's been dead, he's, he's never met him, he doesn't know him, he doesn't have that relationship. And so instead, he sees the Israelites growing in great number and he becomes fearful of them. And so a solution is oppress them, enslave them before they grow too large and get too big and take over. And so God's people are now slaves in Egypt. Now, might there have been seeds of doubt starting to be planted? Maybe. Where is God? Why is this happening? How did we get here? Has he forgotten us? Maybe seeds of doubt started to be planted. And then Exodus 2, 23, we see the king of Egypt died. Okay, maybe there's hope. There's a new king. And then it says that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out to help. And verse 24 says, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with them. And then here we are in chapter three. And we see God in his sovereign and perfect time decide to act as he speaks to Moses through the burning bush. And in this passage, we really see God's call to Moses. But what I'd like to focus on this morning are the characteristics of God that are displayed in God's interaction and call to Moses through the burning bush. That's our focus, beholding God's character. And we're gonna look at nine characteristics in total. It's really quite incredible that in just these 17 verses, we can see so much about our God and who he is. 
My hope for today is that we would behold the character of God and that it would lead us then to a deeper love and worship of him. That even the most difficult and darkest and confusing times, even in the deepest of doubts, when we behold our God, we are led to still worship him in all things at all times. This morning I wanna challenge us in three specific ways, ways in which we may have seeds of doubt. I wanna challenge us to behold God's character in our suffering, to behold God's character in our inadequacies, and to behold God's character in our mission. And as a result, to live in a greater trust and love and worship to him. So first, behold God's character in your suffering. Verses one through nine, behold God's character in your suffering. And the suffering that we're referring to in this passage is the suffering of God's people, the Israelites. And looking at their suffering, we see God begin to reveal his character. And I believe as we behold the character of God that it will be of great comfort to us even in our suffering. That as we look at the two, our suffering and God's character, we can be brought to a place of peace and comfort and worship, even in our suffering. The first characteristic of God that we see, really I think it lays the foundation of the character of God, is that God is holy. God is holy. And the story begins with Moses tending his flock of sheep. Now at this point, he had already fled Egypt. Remember, he was an Israelite, grew up an Egyptian, and he had now fled Egypt and has lived in the desert for 40 years. And one day, as he's tending his flock, he sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed by the fire. And so this strikes his interest. And Moses is now witnessing a supernatural event from God. And some try to scientifically or naturally explain this. Some say, well, no, it wasn't on fire. It it was the type of flower which is blooming at that time. And and so Moses saw the flower petals and he thought it was on fire. Or, Or some will say, no, no, it was just at just the right time, the sun was setting and at the angle he was at, he thought the bush was on fire, but then he realized it wasn't on fire. Look, Moses had been the pastures for 40 years now. If this caught his attention, this was no ordinary event. This was miraculous. This was supernatural. And then look what it says in verse four and five. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God is now speaking to Moses out of the bush and he warns Moses. He says, do not come any nearer because you are on holy ground. Now the ground itself was not inherently holy, but it had become holy because of the presence of God who is holy. Moses is now on the hot seat. He shouldn't be there. He doesn't belong. He is in the presence of the holy God. And it's only by God's mercy that he's even able to be there. In fact, in a way, he's much like the bush. He should be consumed by the fire. He should be consumed by God's holiness. But God is supernaturally and mercifully keeping him unharmed, like the bush. God is a holy God. He is set apart. 
And when we find ourselves in suffering or in hardship, we must remember that our God is a holy God. And we must remember that his ways are holy. And we must remember that his ways are set apart. In times of trials, in times of suffering, we're often tempted to doubt God. But we must not dare ever doubt this holy God. He is a God who is far greater than us. He is a God who who is set apart from us. He is on his throne. He is in control. He is holy. Do you trust this holy God? Or when the sufferings come, do the seeds of doubt begin to take root? May we behold our God and see that he is a holy God. May we put on humility before God. May we, like Isaiah, when he sees the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, when the seraphim says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. How does Isaiah respond? Woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips. May we have humility and fear God in his holiness. You see, the more we fear God in his holiness, the less we fear the what-ifs and our sufferings. When we fear God in his holiness, what is there to fear today? Sometimes we become so overwhelmed by the what-ifs that we then challenge God and we challenge his authority and we challenge his will and we challenge his plan and we challenge his goodness as if we know better than this holy God. Do you seek to contend with God? We cannot even stand in his presence. It's holy ground. In your sufferings, in your times of doubt, behold the character of God and see that he is a holy God. Next, we see that God is compassionate. God is compassionate. Look at verse seven. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. God knows our sufferings. God is a holy God, but he's not a distant God who's unaware and doesn't care with the dealings of his people. He's not a God who who just looks through the glass walls and he just sees his people suffering and, and he just kind of pities them from afar. No, God is a compassionate God. And to be compassionate means to suffer with. It means that he is within the walls, that he is with his people, that he has chosen out to enter into the sufferings of his people. God knows. He hears your cries. He hears your prayers. There's not a word that has been said. There's not an act that has been done. There's not a tear that has been shed that God does not know about. You feel that nobody really knows what you're going through? That nobody truly knows your suffering? God knows. And when it says, I know their sufferings in verse seven, that know, it's a very interesting word. 
Hebrew scholars point out that it's not an intellectual knowledge, that I'm just aware of it, that God is just intellectually aware of what's going on, but rather it's an experiential knowledge, that he experientially knows our sufferings. That God in his compassion experientially knows the sufferings of his people. Isaiah 63, nine says, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. That he experiences that suffering with them. That he has entered into their sufferings. Now, this does not mean that God the Father experiences it in the same way that we as humans experience it. We have to remember, we have to acknowledge the impassibility of God. God does not suffer in the same way that we suffer. If God was passable, if if he could suffer in the same way that we suffer, then that would say that God could be harmed, that God could be overpowered, that, that there could be a greater force than God. And if this were the case, then God would not have the freedom to rule according to his sovereign will. But instead, he, he would be weakened by others. He'd be weakened by his own emotions and his joint sufferings with his people. No, that's not how God is. God is an impassable God. That being said, we do have to acknowledge that in a way, God does enter into our sufferings. He is a compassionate God who suffers with his people and who experientially knows their sufferings. I hope this example is helpful. Like like all, it falls through at some point. But imagine me and my son, we, we go to the park to play and we get there and he wants to play on the playground. All right, so he's playing in the playground. I'm kind of sitting off on the side. I'm sitting on the bench. I'm kind of watching everyone, everything that's going on. My eyes are especially on my son. And then off to the side, this, this other boy, he falls down, and, you know, he's crying. Wah, 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 and he's, oh. You know, and I'm sitting there. I'm like, ooh, like, that, that stinks. Like, poor guy, that, that's got to hurt. But okay, like, you know, we're, we're still going on, and I'm still watching my son. He's still playing. And then let's say my son falls down, and now he's crying. Wah, 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 right? Now, okay, and then now... I don't just sit there and be like, oh, well, that stinks. Like, that's, that's got to hurt. Right? No, but what? Now, now I'm up. Now I'm up and I go towards him. And now I'm with him. And now out of my love for him, I'm suffering. Like, he's hurt. He's crying. And because I love him, now I am suffering with him. And let's say that he, he broke his arm. We realize, okay, this thing's not working. And, 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 then, and let's say I've, I've never broken my arm before. And so I've never, let's say I've never experienced this same pain that he's experiencing right now. I can still enter into his suffering. I don't need to say, oh, here, let me just break my arm. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're right, that does hurt. I'm so sorry, now I can suffer with you. No, but because I love him, I am suffering with him in a very particular way. I feel it with him. I have compassion for him. I have entered into his suffering because of my love towards him. Parents, you know, when your child is suffering, you suffer, and you feel it with them. See, God being a compassionate God, it doesn't mean that he has to feel it in the same way as us. It doesn't mean that he has to be this emotionally swayed God, that, that he heard their sufferings, he, he, he heard them, he knew their sufferings, and so he felt bad for Israel, and so then he decided to act. No. God decided to act because of his covenant love towards his people. He wasn't surprised by what was happening. He decided to act in his perfect sovereign time. It is through his love that he knows their sufferings. It is because of his covenant-keeping love that he experientially knows the sufferings of his people. 
And we see this even more clearly now being under the new covenant in which God the Son has now directly entered into our sufferings. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, God has decided to enter into our sufferings by adding humanity to himself. And this tells us that God the Son not only knows what it's like to suffer as a human, but he's also able to help us in our suffering as well. You see, Jesus, God the Son, faced suffering like you and I. He did not have a place to rest his head. He endured gossip, slander. He was criticized. He was mocked. His theology and his message was rejected. He was betrayed. He was abandoned by his own friends. He experienced a torturous death and he was forsaken by his father. God knows our sufferings. And when we find ourselves in a trial with seemingly no answer, it is our temptation to doubt God. It is our temptation to think God does not really know or God does not really care. And the silence of God tempts us to think God has abandoned us. Do not think that way, beloved. Know that God is a compassionate God. Even in the midst of your sufferings, God is with you. And he cares. And he knows your sufferings. Just because relief to your suffering is not immediate does not mean that God has abandoned you or that God is not compassionate or that God does not know. Israel had waited hundreds of years, but God had not forgotten them. He knew their sufferings. He experientially knew their sufferings. And out of his covenant love for them in his perfect and right time, he acted. God knows the sufferings of his people. He is a compassionate God. Next, we see that God is redemptive. Look at verse eight, that God is redemptive in verse eight. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God is not just a compassionate God, but he's also a redemptive God. That he will deliver his people. See, it's not just that God will rescue the Israelites from slavery, but he promises to deliver them to a land flowing with milk and honey. Deliverance is not just from something, but is also to something. In the same way, in God's redemptive plan of salvation, he does not just deliver his people from sin but he delivers them to salvation. Israel cannot deliver themselves out of slavery. As one commentator put it, said, quote, God must do for Israel what it cannot do for itself. But the goal is not reform to make life more bearable in Egypt. It is removal from the situation, end quote. That is what God has done for you if you are indeed in Christ today. See, you could not deliver yourself from your slavery to sin, but God has the power to do so, and he has redeemed you. 
and does not seek just to make your life more bearable in your sin, but instead he removes you out of the kingdom of darkness and he has brought you into his marvelous light. If you are in Christ, God has redeemed you through the finished work of his son. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We have sinned against God. We have broken the law of God and we have earned for ourselves condemnation and the wrath of God, but God is a redemptive God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Isaiah 53, five, speaking of Christ, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Titus 3, five, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So while we are in bondage to sin and death, God has redeemed us from that because God is a redemptive God. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you are here and you are not in Christ Jesus. You are not a Christian. Know that God is a redemptive God. That there is salvation found in him and him alone, not in yourselves, not in religion, not in your Christian heritage or upbringing, not in your giving, not in your good deeds, but salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. In Romans 10, 9 and 13 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You cannot redeem yourself. You are in bondage. But God is a redemptive God. Cry out to him in faith and repentance. For those who are in Christ, let me ask you this. In your suffering, do you doubt God's love for you? Do you ever struggle with doubts that he loves you? I know at times when we are in that pit of despair, it is hard to trust God's love for us. Beloved, remember, God is a redemptive God. He has rescued you. He has purchased you with his blood. He has taken you out of bondage and he has adopted you into his family. Behold the character of God. He is a redemptive God. Well, next we see, behold God's character in your inadequacies. Behold God's character in your inadequacies. Because this holy God is compassionate and redemptive, he now chooses to use Moses to act and to fulfill his purposes. Because God is purposeful. And God specifically chooses Moses. He has a purpose for Moses. Look at what he says in verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
See, God had been preparing Moses for the last 40 years in the desert for this specific purpose in this specific time. In all of his strengths and in all of his weaknesses, God chose to use Moses in this way to bring God's people out of Egypt. Now, did Moses feel inadequate to the task? Oh, you bet. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But despite his inadequacies, and even through his inadequacies, God has purposed to use Moses to accomplish the will of God. What has God purposed for your life? What has God called you to do? In some ways, God has called every Christian to the same things. To make disciples of all nations. To love one another with brotherly affection to encourage and to edify the body, to bear one another's burdens, to seek the things above, and so on and so forth. In other ways, he has called you to specific things, right? If you are a husband, you are called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. If you are a wife, you are called to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. If you are a child, you are called to obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And in even more specific ways, in God's sovereignty, he has placed each of you exactly where he wants you. In that specific family. In that specific neighborhood. In that specific office. Etc. And he's placed you there. And he's called you to be a light of Christ to those around you. So in that way, he has given you a unique and a special calling in those places that others do not have. Will you respond to God's purpose in your life? Will you respond to his call in obedience? Or will you fixate on your inadequacies and refuse to walk in what God has purposed for you to walk? Will you doubt God's purpose for your life? That God has purposed for you to to be there where you are to live for his glory? Like Moses, Even in our inadequacies, God chooses to use broken, sinful people like you and me. We must not let our inadequacies hinder us from doing the Lord's work, but instead it ought to drive us to dependence on him. We must behold the character of God and know that he is a purposeful God and trust him and trust his purposes, even our inadequacies. And if we continued reading the story, we'd see in chapter four that Moses further questions God. He continues in his fear and he continues to make excuses. Let's look there in chapter four, starting in verse 10. Chapter four, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Moses like, look man, like I'm I'm not a good speaker. I'm not the right guy for the job. God answers back in verse 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God says, I made your mouth. I made your tongue. I make people see or not see. I make them hear or not hear. Don't worry about your inadequacies. I'm in control here. And then Moses, he he makes a last-ditch effort. Verse 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) Not a good move, Moses. Verse 14, 
Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Well, God's anger was kindled against him. God was patient and gracious to Moses. And he gave him Aaron to speak for him. But let me ask you, are you resisting God's calling in your life? As in, are you like Moses coming up with excuse after excuse after excuse? Or will you be like Samuel who says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening? Will you be like Isaiah who says, here I am, send me? See, every Christian has been given a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. Every Christian has a role in the body of Christ. And the question is, are you using your spiritual gifts? Are you using what God has given you for the edification of the body and for the glory of God? Will you be obedient to God's calling for your life, for his purposes for your life? Even through your inadequacies, will you say, God, by your grace, I will go. Behold the character of God and see he is a purposeful God and he has a purpose for you. Next, we see that God is near, and God is near. And God calls Moses to a specific task. And the call is quite clear. I mean, it's, it's not confusing. Verse 10, I mean, he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It's pretty clear. But it's when Moses hears of this call that his, here I am, in verse four, turns into, who am I, in verse 11. And actually, Moses' question of who am I, it's not necessarily a bad question. And in some ways, it's a very good question. In fact, to not ask this question at all, it could be worse. And Moses has reason, I think, to ask this question. I mean, think of his life for the past 40 years. 40 years ago, he had fled Egypt, and he has hid in the desert ever since. I mean, he has hit quite a low. He was once a prince in Egypt, and now he is a shepherd in the desert. And he was found out to be a murderer in Egypt, killing an Egyptian guard. In fact, in Acts 7, we get an even deeper insight of what Moses was thinking of when he killed that Egyptian guard. See, he thought he was the one to deliver God's people. Acts 7, 23. You don't have to turn there, but listen, Acts 7, verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. So now when God is calling him to be the deliverer of his people, Moses must be thinking, man, I've already tried that. I've tried that and I've failed. I'm the wrong guy. I can't be the one to go back and to deliver your people. I mean, what are they going to say? Wait a second. Moses, is, is that you? Aren't you the one who ruled over us and then you killed an Egyptian guard and then you fled? And now you're back 40 years later? What? It's no wonder when Moses heard God's calling, he responds with, who am I? See, the question, who am I, is not a bad question if it leads us to the right place. When this question paralyzes us or, or leads us to inactivity or, or distrust in the Lord, then it becomes a very bad question. But when it leads us to full dependence and trust in God and not in ourselves, 
It's a very good question to ask. See, his confidence must be in God, not himself. Notice God's response to Moses. Moses' question of, who am I? When Moses says, well, who am I? He doesn't say, oh man, you're great. You're Moses. You're awesome. No, what does he say? He says, who am I? In verse 12, he said, but I will be with you. That's his response. God answers the question of who am I with, but I will be with you. God doesn't answer Moses' question with who he is. God answers with I will be with you. See, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who God is and that he is with you. And indeed, beloved, God is with you. In Christ's great commission, he ends with such comforting words. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Do you believe that he is with you always? Not only that, but he sent his spirit to be with us, right? Romans 8, 11 says the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells within us. We are not left alone, but God is near and he is with us and he is present. Even in our inadequacies, even in the seeds of doubt that says, who am I? Behold the character of God, that God is with us, that God is near. Next, we see that God is powerful. God is powerful. I want us to notice the confidence God has here in verse 12. Let's look at verse 12. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, it is going to happen. It's not an if, it's a when. This confidence, this promise, it rests in the power of God. It does not rest in the power of Moses. If it did, then there'd be no confidence, there'd be no promise but it is God who will deliver his people through Moses by the power of God himself. And so too must we rely on the power of God in all things. Do you feel inadequate to fulfill God's calling in your life? Do you feel inadequate to live in the ways in which God has called you to live? In our own strength, on our own power, we are inadequate. But through the power of God and his grace, we can fulfill God's purposes for our lives. We rely on his grace and his power in all things. We live in what Jerry Bridges calls a dependent responsibility. That we are responsible to act, to be active in our calling and in Christian living. We are responsible to mortify our sins and to put on Christ's likeness. We are responsible to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross daily, and to follow him. But we do so fully dependent on him. It is by his grace and his power that we're able to do so. Not our own strength, but his. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Responsibility. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Dependence. In those seeds of doubt, in your inadequacies in which you feel, I do not have the power, I do not have the strength to do what I'm called to do for the Lord. Behold the character of God. 
turned from, from a, a navel gazer looking inward, oh, inadequate, inadequate, to a God gazer looking upward. He is powerful. See his power that strengthens you to live for the glory of him. Our last section is to behold God's character in your mission. Behold God's character in your mission. Let's read verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. See, God tells Moses that he will be with him, but Moses continues to question God, and he asks, well, who is it that's sending me? Under whose authority am I speaking? And God responds in such a profound way. He says, I am who I am. What a magnificent statement. This name is reserved for God alone. In it carries so much meaning and weight that it can only be for God. In fact, this is why when Jesus in John 8 says, before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones to kill him because they understood what he was saying. He was claiming deity. And indeed, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. This name I am, this name I am carries great significance. The first thing I want us to notice in God saying I am who I am is that God is an eternal God. He's an eternal God. See, in saying I am who I am, God is speaking of the eternality of his deity, that he is the absolute sovereign. God kind of answers Moses' question with two responses. It's really two ways, I should say, of expressing the same name. First, he says in verse 14, I am who I am. It's a, this is a declaration of who he is. The word I am is the Hebrew verb which means to be. And the tense of the verb suggests an unfinished action, a, a perpetual, a continuous action that I am being what I am always being. And then his second response is in verse 15, is that the Lord, all caps, the Lord has sent you. This is my name forever. As most of you know, when Lord is all caps, the word is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And Yahweh comes from the same verb to be, but this word is found in the third person saying, he is. That when you say his name, it's he is, Yahweh. And when God says his name, it's I am. And he is saying to Moses, I am who I am. I am being what I am always being. I am Yahweh. I am being and I will always be being. This is his name. I am is his name. Yahweh is his name. I think maybe it's helpful to understand that names had much more significance and meaning back then than maybe they do today. And maybe it's similar to nicknames like we give people like Speedy Gonzalez or Big Rich or Munchkin Mike. It, it kind of describes who they are. And then Moses says, well, what is your name? Like what kind of a God should I say you are? I am who I am. The one who is, the one who will be, the one who will always be. 
God will be because he always is. He is eternal. He always has been and he always will be. Who sent you? I am sent you. Yahweh sent you. I am. I absolutely am. You see, God is. He absolutely is. God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And unlike these other false Egyptian gods who were created, and they have their names to describe themselves, God was not created. He is who he is. Before creation was Yahweh, I am. Before there was creation, God was being. And since God is being, he can never come into being, and he can never go out of being, because he is being. He is dependent on no one and no thing. He is absolute being. He is eternal. Who is with you, Moses? Who is it that's sending you, Moses? I am is sending you. I am is with you. Beloved, this eternal, absolute God is forever with you, even today in your mission. And in times of doubt, in the mission in which God has set before you, know that I am is with you, that Yahweh is with you, that he is the one who has given you your calling, that he has given you your mission, and this God, Yahweh, is an eternal God. He has not expired. He is not aged out. He is not dead. He is eternally reigning on his throne, and he is with you in the mission that he has set before you. And not only does God being the I am show us that God is eternal, but I think it also shows us that God is immutable, that he is immutable. Let's look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you this is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. God is showing his immutability, that he is the same God as their fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he has not changed. He is not different, and things may feel different. They're in captivity. That feels different, but while their circumstances may be different, their God is not. For Yahweh is the I am, for he is being what he is always being. You see, God cannot change, for he is who he is. For him to change would be for him to lessen himself. For God is perfect, and any change to God would change perfection. He cannot be improved. He does not progress. He does not develop. There is no God 2.0. God's not like an iPhone where he needs to be upgraded every year to make improvements to himself. Oh yeah, we have the God SC and, and the God 16. I'll take the God Pro XL. No, God is perfect. How can you improve perfection? You can't. He is who he is. Praise God. Thank God that he's immutable, that he's unchangeable. Because if he were not immutable, if he could change, he would no longer be perfect. But he is perfect. And he is always right. And he does whatever pleases him. 
and it is always right, and it is always perfect. Nothing can hinder God from doing what is right or doing what pleases him because he is absolutely free, and in his freedom, he always does according to his will, and it is always right, and it is always perfect. And this God who was right and who acted perfectly to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is immutable. And it's the same God to Moses. And it was perfect and right for Moses. And beloved, this God is the same God to us. He has not changed. He is the I am. He is being what he has always been and he will never cease being what he is being. And there may be times when it feels like God has changed. Maybe you feel like he's no longer with you. Maybe you feel like he's no longer in control. Maybe you feel like he no longer loves you. I'm sure Israel would have felt some of those very same things. But God is the I am. He does not change. And his love and his presence and his sovereignty and his power and his perfection will never change. He is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he will always keep his word and he will never break his promises, and he will never cease being God. And is this God who sends you? And is this God who is with you? Always. Well, lastly, we see that God is faithful. God is faithful. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you, and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. See, God promised to deliver them from the hands of the Egyptians, and indeed he did. God does not make empty promises, but he is always faithful to fulfill them. See, we live in a day and age in which my word is my bond has less and less meaning. There's the fine print. There's the loopholes. There's deceit and deception. There are unfaithful marriages. There are unfaithful business partners. There's unfaithfulness all around us. But beloved, God is a faithful God. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we could go on and on and on. What God says he is faithful to do. Do you trust that God is a faithful God? Do you trust in his promises? Do you trust in his word? His word says he will never leave us nor forsake us. His word says nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His word says that he is with us always to the end of the age. His word says that Christ has risen from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of God and that he will return again. 
Do you believe in his word? Do you believe that God is faithful to preserve his word and to keep his word? I believe that beholding the faithfulness of God should then create in us a missional attitude here on earth. See, it ought to give us boldness to live on mission for him, to be ambassadors for Christ, knowing that God is faithful, that he will bring us to completion, and we will one day be with him forever. But until that day comes, we are called to be on mission for him today, to use the life that he has given to us for the proclamation of the gospel and for the glory of God. Behold, God is a faithful God. Well, as we close, I want to encourage you one last time to behold our God. In times of doubt, in times of questioning, in times of uncertainty, behold our God. God is holy. He is compassionate. He is redemptive. He is purposeful. He is near. He is powerful. He is eternal. He is immutable, and he is faithful. When those seeds of doubt begin to be planted, where should we look but upward and see who is on the throne? See, the Israelites were suffering. Moses was overwhelmed by his inadequacies and by the mission that was set before him. And maybe you feel similar at times in your suffering or in your inadequacies, or in your mission, you begin to doubt the things of God. See, when the seeds of doubt begin to take root, it's because we're not trusting something about God and who He is. But when we behold the character of God and we trust who He is, we are set free from the deepest of doubts. Behold our God and live in worship and praise to Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you, God, for who you are and what you've done. God, you are worthy of all worship and praise. And I pray, Lord, that as seeds of doubt may enter in, God, that we would behold who you are. And God, that we have no reason to doubt, but to instead to trust in you and to live and worship towards you. We ask, Lord, that your spirit will be convicting our hearts and changing us or to live more and more for your glory. God, as we now bring our gifts and our offerings to you, we pray that we would do so with worshipful hearts and grateful hearts towards all that you've given to us. Lord, be with those who cannot give. Would your grace be upon them. May you help them in their times of difficulty. And we pray that this offering be used for the furtherance of your kingdom and for the glory of you, we pray in Christ's name, amen.